Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert and I, last time we're talking about the rapture, about uh, Christian eschatology, religious eschatology in general, and secular eschatology of a technological nature, such as the singularity, transhumanism. And uh, our discussion went so long that we decided to divide it up into two parts. So here is the second part of our conversation on the end times. Okay, well, I've got another uh, futurist, okay. sort of techno-futurist mindset that I think we can ask. Is this a religion? Is it like a religion? Or does it just sort of like uh, tickle some of the same weak spots we've got yeah. as many religions do? So I want to talk about the singularity. Ah, Robert, w- w- you, you, do you feel good about the singularity? You feel bad about it? You think it's a bunch of hooey? Uh, I feel good about it. Um, yeah. I mean, part of that, I think, comes from just being a, a I, I'm a fan of like the Ian M. Banks culture series model uh-huh. of of a post singularity, post scarcity world in which the super intelligent computers have our best interests at heart. They they kind of look after us as kind of benevolent, uh, semi knowable gods. Yeah. OK. OK. Uh, well, so I think we need to explore this idea because this to me is is the core of this kind of uh, topic we're talking about today, like technological eschatology. So. You could say that the singularity, I think, has come to have almost as many interpretations as the Christian eschaton, right? Like, just like the Christian eschatologies, they're all sort of loosely related and grounded in similar beliefs, but they vary in the explicit details or in the way you'd explain them, even if they're not necessarily contradictory. Uh, So in the most basic sense, the singularity is a hypothesis that technological innovation at some point in the future is going to reach a tipping point of unimaginable innovation that fundamentally changes the fate of humanity on a rapid time scale. Uh, very often it involves artificial intelligence. And so I'm, I'm going to talk about three basic models just to give you an idea. One, one is the super intelligence model. And this is the idea that he, humans are going to create superhuman artificial intelligence. So when you think about it, intelligence I would probably agree has been the most rapid driver of change in the universe up until this point. Like in cosmological or geological history, what difference does 10,000 years usually make to anything? You know, not a lot, hardly any. But you think about how much Earth has changed in the past 10,000 years due to intelligence. Uh, Once we reach the creation of machines with functional intelligence exceeding that of any human, assuming that actually does happen, proponents argue that this superhuman artificial intelligence is just going to rapidly transform our environment. Uh, The conditions of our lives and the capabilities of human civilization will be fundamentally transformed on a very huge scale. And they say so the age of superintelligence is dawning and this is the singularity. Another way of looking at it is also based on artificial intelligence, but it's uh, known as the intelligence explosion. And this is based on the idea of self-improving intelligence paradigms that surpass our ability to understand or control them. So let's say, Robert, you build a superhuman artificial intelligence. Okay. What's the first thing you have it do? Um, co-author my paper about uh, the creation of uh, superhuman uh, uh, AI Intelligence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's a smart move. Um, but, uh, do some talk shows to promote it and my book about the creation. Yeah, uh, I guess. 
Yeah, it's hard to think past that, right? Come up with the tastiest breakfast cereal ever created. <laughs> no, I mean, what a lot of people say is, well, you know, the best bang for your buck as soon as you create a superhuman artificial intelligence is that it would be best put to use designing ways to rapidly make itself more intelligent, which theoretically it should be able to do. So if it can do this, it will experience exponential self-improvement. And not only will our technological intelligence grow, and not only will it accelerate, but its acceleration will accelerate. I feel like the people saying that that's the best use of uh, superintelligence um, have not seen any science fiction film. Because <laughs> it seems like the thing to do is, all right, it's it's reached the point to where it's smart enough that I can take it to Vegas yeah. and, and just totally kill. But it's not so smart that it will literally kill me or or Skynet the entire uh, country. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the argument would go that, well, even if you don't do that, somebody's going to. Somebody's going to say, well, I want to have a smarter AI than your AI, so I'm going to have my AI improve itself. Hmm. That's true. I don't know. I guess you you take your AI to a poker game, and somebody else has been having uh, their AI self-improve its own intelligence, and it's telling it that person how this this metaphor is out of hand, but... Uh, but you want to be the person with the smartest AI, right? Well, but it's kind of like you're you're reaching a point where you can create your own demons, create your own deities, and in doing so, it seems like you you need to know where to stop. Yeah, like like maybe not make a full blown god, but make a demigod. Mm-hmm. Let me make an artificial demigod because then then at least it has limits, right? Yeah, you want a Hercules, not a Zeus. Yeah, I'd r- far rather deal with a, Her- a renegade Hercules this in a situation as opposed to a renegade Zeus, which of course is, I mean, that's pretty much how both of those guys rolled. Yeah, quite they true. did what they wanted. Okay, one more idea of the singularity, and this is a, a, I think, a simpler version, but it just says that at some point, technological process, again, usually the emphasis is on artificial intelligence, but you could put the emphasis elsewhere. At some point, it begins to accelerate so quickly that our power to predict the outcome becomes basically zero. Events will become so strange and unpredictable that we, we just can't even imagine them from our present vantage point. Ah, so an outside context event. Yeah, okay. sure. Outside context problem. Caused by technological innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of modern singularity thinking can be traced, and th- there are plenty of people who have written about this over the years, but I'd say the biggest figure in the singularity today is Ray Kurzweil. Mm-hmm. He's the technologist and author, Ray Kurzweil, very smart guy, uh, worked on technology for years. He's made a lot of very accurate and interesting predictions that have that have proved correct over the years. But he's also made a lot of predictions about the future that a lot of people now think are, eh, I don't know, maybe he's being overly optimistic. But anyway, Kurzweil has argued in several books that the singularity, this artificial intelligence uh, revolution that's going to fundamentally change humanity is coming and it's coming soon. In his 2005 book, The Singularity is Near, Kurzweil predicted it would happen in 2045. So, Robert, you got any plans for 2045? Um, I think my son will be out of high school at that point. I think he's, he's, uh, graduating high school theoretically in 2040. So, okay. So I guess I'm, so I don't know. Will he have a job by the time the singularity happens? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about that. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you do post high school if the singularity is coming in just a few years, like, do you go to college hey. with with the singularity in mind? Bingo. <laughs> that is a very good question. So 
so let's back up. Let's just assume for a moment a singularity type eschaton is coming. Mm-hmm. That might be a big assumption, but let's assume something like that will happen. Is it good or bad? Will we get the AI Maitreya or the AI Ragnarok? Ooh. Well, obviously, I want Maitreya as opposed to Ragnarok. Yeah, I mean, so the Maitreya version, what would it be? You know, wars cease, all diseases, including aging itself, are eradicated. There's general abundance of resources and wealth. Everybody gets what they want. Humans live indefinitely in a state of harmony, exploration, and bliss. I feel like the model we get in most sci-fi scenarios is that you think you're going to get Maitreya, but then you're actually on the road to Ragnarok, yeah. and then you end up just kind of burning everything down and going back to whatever messed up system you had before. Right. So why do people think that we're on the road to Ragnarok? Well, you mentioned earlier, you know, the machine, a machine smart enough to, to do all this great stuff for you is also smart enough to figure out how to kill you if it wants to. Right. Uh, so why might it want to? Well, super intelligent machines, people say, will either intentionally choose to eliminate humanity for some reason, though I admit I've never heard this explained in a way that made a lot of sense to me, like why they would intentionally choose to hunt us down and eradicate us. So maybe somebody could explain that to me. Um, but to uh, judge the living and the dead, it could yeah. be. Uh, but but the other version is that perhaps merely by a flaw of design, they tend to damage or destroy humanity as a byproduct of executing their primary function. And that that vision seems more plausible to me. But so here's one common example of how something like this would go. You've got a super intelligent computer program that's smarter than any human. It can improve its own intelligence. It's just crazy smart. And it's designed to maximize efficiency along the production line of a factory that makes toilet paper. So somebody forgets to add some conditionals and the computer program ends up turning all the atoms on the surface of the earth, including the ones in your body, into toilet paper. It has done its job well. That sounds kind of crazy, but some tamer version of that nightmare seems more plausible to me than the intentional Terminator-style eradication of humans. I don't know. What do you think about that, Robert? Um. Yeah, I... <sighs> I, I think I tend to interpret the sort of Skynet models, the sort of like all humans are flawed, thus, thus all humans must be eradicated thing to be more of a, uh, more, more projecting a, insecurities. Well, that and also just a bedtime story to say like, make sure you program in that fail safe. Right. You know, be, and I feel like obviously we would have that fail safe and that if it were a super intelligent machine, it would have yeah, I just have a hard time buying into that model of a super advanced system that it would be so catastrophically uh, myopic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both visions have their advocates, right? I mean, right. There, there are smart people on both sides. Uh, but the funny thing is, all this is assuming that something like the singularity will actually happen one way or another. And not everyone agrees that it will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also people who have been critical of the idea of the singularity and some people who have characterized it as a religious idea inherently. One of them is the uh, technologist and uh, virtual reality pioneer uh, Jerome Lanier. And he's got a lot of opinions about the singularity. He's made this case in in, in books uh, that it's not only religious in nature, but potentially a dangerous or harmful religion. So I, I read an article that he wrote and published in The New York Times in 2010 called The First Church of Robotics. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was interesting. So Lanier points out that 
uh, every news report of an advance in artificial intelligence gives us the impression that the field is making steady progress to overtake human intelligence and capabilities. And I, I sort of agree with him. I get that feeling when you see these little news stories like there's there's a new artificial intelligence program that can smell flatulence. There's a new artificial intelligence program that can tell a joke. You know, all these like weird little quirks of humanity, and they seem to add up to something over time. Hmm. Okay, so it can smell farts. It can make jokes about farts. Right. It's it's, it's about to corner like the stand up community. It has become Martin. Adam Sandler. Yeah, <laughs> it has surpassed its humanity. Uh, but yeah, so there's nothing wrong with individual AI projects, Lanier says. In fact, he has worked on them himself, but he makes a couple points. He says individual advances in artificial intelligence research can be interpreted more usefully without the overall framework of AI, meaning without the idea that computers are becoming synthetic versions of human intelligence. And the example he gives is, you know, the IBM computer winning on Je- Jeopardy, Watson going on there beating people on Jeopardy. So he he says that's a theatrical stunt that oversells a fake aspect of what this computer program can do, you know, conversational human knowledge, which it doesn't really have. Right. And undersells a real aspect of its capabilities that it's a very powerful phrase based search engine. And then uh, he also says that AI uh, that the AI that in some way passes for human requires humans to do all the work. Like when you've got a social robot, you know, going around uh-huh. saying like, hi, I'm your friendly social robot. Look at how advanced my artificial intelligence is. His point is that humans being social will work with what they get. And if you're having a transaction with a robot that you are told is social in nature, you can very easily adapt your social behaviors to the extreme limitations of this machine. And they do tend to be pretty extreme. You're not going to mistake a a machine for a human. Yeah. I mean, as we've discussed on the show before, I mean, humans can have we can have conversations with 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 a doll. With a, with a smiley face, it's yeah. scrawled on the wall and, uh, and pudding. So, uh, it's not that much of a step to say that, yes, we can have a conversation with a chat bot. Yeah. We can, we can have a, a conversation with a search engine. And of course, we can certainly have a conversation with an Echo Borg. How often, though, do you meet a person who really loves fruit trees? <laughs> That's true. I, I love fruit trees. I hate fruit trees. What? How can you hate fruit trees? Because uh, I'm not a robot like you. What would you. you do if you found a turtle? The turtle's on his back. Why aren't you turning him over, Joe? What? What? what, what <laughs> my, I'll tell you about my mother. Uh, okay, sorry. So, but anyway, Lanier goes on to say, quote, what bothers me about this trend, and he's talking about this AI media trend, however, is that by allowing artificial intelligence to reshape our concept of personhood, we're leaving ourselves open to, th- to the flip side. We think of people more and more as computers, just as we think of computers as people. And I think there might be something to that, actually, that the idea of AI not only sort of lifts computers up, but in a certain way at least emotionally, kind of lowers humans down. Yeah, um, and it, we, we've discussed this, I, I feel, recently on the show, too, about how just even though we, we have this increasingly pervasive model of our own uh, cognitive performance as being essentially a program, we think about processing things. We yeah. think about visual input of data. We think about crunching the numbers uh, and, and various other models. We use technology to inform form our understanding of how our brains are working and those are just those are just metaphors really yeah and but the underlying processes are not really comparable to 
the computers that we have today. It would be we could maybe compare them to an advanced computer we'll have in the in the future, some sort of uh, maybe um, you know um, advanced uh, machine, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, they're they're very much metaphors. And I'm not saying that they're not useful metaphors, but I, I do think I want to take what Lanier is saying seriously here because mm-hmm. uh, I think he has a point. Anyway, he goes on uh, when he's going to get to the singularity. So he says, you know, engineers are humans with human desires, even though th- they may be advocating this sort of like dehumanized technological ideology or view of intelligence and personhood in the world. And they've got the same desires that lead us to create and follow religions. So this sort of leads them to wrap their technological ideologies up into parallels of religious thinking. And he, and according to Lanier, he thinks the concept of the singularity is a religion expressed through engineering culture. And he points out if this religion entails, you know, essentially eschatological beliefs that imply that most people, basically, I would say anybody not working in information theory, artificial intelligence or robotics, if pretty much anybody outside those fields can basically just sit and wait for imminent salvation or destruction via the machines. And if inadvertent devaluation of persons by overstating analogies between persons and computers takes place. It can certainly uh, exacerbate tensions between traditional religions and modernity, and it can be a destructive and demoralizing force in itself. So anyway, he ends by saying technology best serves humanity when we resist the urge to to turn it into a religious ideology. Yeah, because otherwise you end up in a situation where you're like, mm, I could I could exercise and eat right, but singularities come in. Singularity is going to work that out. Yeah. Or you might think, I'm not even going to bother to write the great American novel because great American novel bought uh, 3705. It's going to write the great yeah. American novel. It's going to write one a day or one every hour. Yeah. I, I could work hard to achieve peace in world civilization, but eh, maybe the AI will sort it all out for yeah. us. Or just kill us all. I mean, either one, it's sort of a demoralizing, demotivating belief. Yeah. Which, of course, has obvious parallels with, uh, you know, more apocalyptic near future um, religious movements. Like yes. I said, the end time is coming. So what does it matter? Give yeah. me your money now. Certainly. Yeah. Wh- whether it's uh, secular or, you know, uh, supernatural or not supernatural in nature, if you've got beliefs about uh, a powerful force that comes in and intervenes and makes all of our actions obsolete, either either way it comes from. Uh, that seems like it can have a demotivating force on the way you live your life. But uh, I want to say one more thing Lanier says about the singularity that I think is interesting. Uh, so I listened to a podcast that was an interview with Lanier, and, and he says, quote, The difference between a religious fanatic and a religious non-fanatic is in the certainty of the imminent timing of whatever their eschaton is, you know, whatever their end of days is. It's when you believe that you know when it's happening and it's soon that you really turn into a nutcase and you do harm to yourself and others. In my mind, the singularity movement is sort of doing that. And I think I see what he's saying there because he sort of qualifies saying that if you mean in the very long term view, humanity will make some phase transition and it has something to do with information technology. That's not necessarily crazy or harmful. You know, you might say, who knows, over the next few thousands of years, some somehow humanity might change itself 
uh, due to computers and the Internet and stuff like that. But the notion that it's going to happen in 20 years or something is destructive and a sign of fanaticism, according to him. And I, I think that that idea makes sense to me, too. Well, in large part, you could say you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're setting yourself up to fail, right? That you're going to reach that point when the second coming is going to happen, when the singularity is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. Yeah. And then how do you feel about the world? Then how do you approach the near and long-term future? Well, I think that is definitely something we should talk about in just a moment. But I want to finish up on the singularity with one or two more things. First of all, I, I want to go back and defend against that by saying there are also people who say, you know, look, if we're worried about the AI Ragnarok uh, saying the AI is going to come in and, and destroy us all, we do need to be thinking about it now, even if it's not going to happen soon. Just the possibility that it might happen soon means that we need to be preparing immediately. I I can see the wisdom in that, too. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's uh, at the risk of sounding facile. I I see both sides. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly uh, if the iceberg is out there, we want to know how not to run the ship into it. Right. But then again. But what if the iceberg is a superhuman robot that you don't even know whether it could possibly exist or not? Well, that's the kind of thinking that enables uh, humanity time and time again to not actually, uh, you know, deal with the problems that are facing them to just say, ah, it might not even be real. So I don't know. The 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 the, the jury's still out on the science there. Uh-huh. Uh, so I want to offer one more thing, the impossible defense of singularity thinking. I, I found a short video on YouTube. Uh, where somebody in a crowd asks Ray Kurzweil himself, the guy who said it's going to happen in 2045, if the singularity is a religion. And uh, Kurzweil responds that he, he says essentially it does provide some of the same things that religion traditionally provided, like a means to forestall death. That's worth pointing out. But it's also not a religion inherently because it's based on scientific and technological prediction. And he said, quote, it doesn't start from rapture. He also says, quote, religion emerged in pre-scientific times. To call it a religion is to say that it's pre-scientific or unscientific. And I think, you know, maybe or maybe not, like, I, I, d- I definitely do sense that some people who call the singularity a religion, because Lanier is not the only one who said this. This is a thing mm-hmm. people say in criticism of it. I think some people are merely being pejorative. Yeah. You, you've noticed that if you ever heard anybody call something that's not a religion a religion, it's an insult. Isn't that interesting? Like, uh, that political candidate you agree with. Greg Stilson, man, you all you Greg Stilson supporters are like a religion. That's never a positive thing. Yeah, I yeah, I I mean, I I find myself doing that less and less because I feel like I can have. I mean, this is just me personally, but I think there are plenty of things that I can say. Oh, I have kind of a religious interest in this. Yeah, not to say that I am, you know, that it's some sort of like fanatical, like unrealistic. Uh, level of enthusiasm for it, but like it, I, I kind of measure it like to the amount of my person, the amount of my identity uh, that I pour into the topic. So I yeah. would say that I have a religious or semi-religious enthusiasm for things like science, for certain mm-hmm. uh, for certain fictional worlds and ideas. Um, 
Yeah. Well, Robert, if I may compliment you, I think that's a sign of broad minded thinking. I mean, no, I, I think both religious and non-religious people. I don't think this is reli- uh, limited to people who think religion is in some way a bad thing. But I think generally both religious and non-religious people I- insult a thing that's not explicitly a religion by calling it a religion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. But yeah, in, in your sense, it doesn't have to be. I mean, in some ways we could just observe like, okay, not assuming that calling something a religion is a bad thing. Uh, in what ways is the singularity like a religion? Well, I think it does have a lot of similarities. It does seem to offer a means to forestall death. It does seem to offer uh, potentially both apocalyptic and utopian eschatological visions. It does seem to rely. I don't know if I would say it relies on uh, faith in the same way that uh, many supernatural beliefs do, but it does seem to sort of ask you to to imagine the possibility that things that we've never seen before are going to happen. You know, we've never seen superhuman yeah. artificial intelligence before. There's no evidence that that can in principle exist. We, but we also just don't know that it couldn't. So it's yeah. just like, Oh, maybe, maybe not. All right. So this seems like a good place to bring it back around to transhumanism and rapture. The, the idea that there are all these similarities between the two things. There are certain conflicts between these two ideas. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the very end here, we may have just a little fun thinking about how the two uh, crash into each other. OK, tell me, because here's one thing I've noticed. I think and, and I haven't seen any data to back this up. This, so this is just purely anecdotal experience. In my experience, people who identify with transhumanism or belief in the singularity are overwhelmingly atheist or agnostic, non-traditionally religious people. Yes, you do see a great deal of that. However, it is worth pointing out that, you, again, you have at least two organizations. You have the Mormon Transhumanist Association. That's the, the world's largest advocacy network. for Really? Yeah, for the ethical use of technology and religion to expand human abilities. That's their, their from their, uh, their talking points. Then you also have the Christian Transhumanist Association. And, uh, you know, each one has their own sort of set of guidelines and all. Um uh, and I could I could certainly roll through a lot of this, but uh, for instance, uh, the the Mormon Transhumanist Association has this uh, idea that they push of uh, transfigurism. <laughs> they said transfigure. They say transfigurism is religious transhumanism, exemplified by syncretization of Mormonism and transhumanism. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then, meanwhile, the Christian Transhumanist Association, one of their tenets is that God's mission involves the transformation and renewal of creation, including humanity, and that we are called by Christ to participate in that mission, working against illness, hunger, oppression, injustice, and death. Huh. Well, yeah, I mean, you could look at it that way. For some reason, the idea of transforming the human animal it's one of those things that I, I don't see in any way that it violates any tenets I recognize of Christianity, but it seems just sort of like uh, aesthetically an affront to traditional religious thinking. It's a lot of what we talked about in our, uh, you know, uh, techno religion episodes that we did earlier. And you could say that this episode is in many ways a, a sequel to those or it's in that spirit. Oh, yes. Uh, but in the techno religion episodes, we talked about how religious thinking seems most encouraged by a traditional technological atmosphere. And when you bring computers and iPhones and stuff, it just does seem profane in some way. And there's nothing in the Bible or in any religious text I know of that says thou shalt not bring a computer into a worship service. (laughs) But, you know, it just doesn't feel very sacred. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. 
Now, going back to the the idea of uh, of sort of Christian transhumanist ideas, uh, that uh, James J. Hughes uh, uh, paper that I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. um, he calls uh, uh, up a, a quote from a 1486 uh, work by uh, Pico del Marandola, who was a Christian humanist, and in his Oration on the Dignity of Man, wrote. Quote, to you is granted the power of degrading yourself into the lower forms of life, the beasts, or to you is granted the power contained in your intellect and judgment to be reborn into the higher forms, the divine. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he wrote other, uh, other statements as well that kind of backed up this kind of, you know, way pre-humanist, uh, notion of how one might improve the expression of human life. Well, yeah, I mean, if, for example, Jesus said, uh, take all you have and give to the poor, then wouldn't the, the Christian who thinks that we can achieve abundance through technology be best served by working on technology that will eliminate all scarcity and bring great, you know, resources to everyone? Yeah, it seems like you would be in favor of any transhumanist idea that does not attempt to, uh, interfere with God's plan for humanity. Yeah. Um, so I guess it depends on what you think that plan is. Right. Now, this is where we get in, into an interesting idea. And this is kind of where, uh, okay. So first of all, you see a lot of, especially in the conspiracy theorists, sort of the, the Christian conspiracy theorist, uh, area of the internet, you see a lot of mashing up of transhumanist ideas with, um, with the bad guys. In uh, in a you know book of uh, revelations. Oh scenario. yeah, R- remember how I mentioned the ones who get to uh, rule with Christ in the millennium are those who have not taken the mark of the beast. And many, interpret- what is the yeah. mark of the beast? I've seen various interpretations where they say, oh, the mark of the beast is transhumanism. Yeah, like to become transhuman is to take the mark of the beast, and therefore only sort of. Uh, you know, non-augmented humans are going to be uh, part of this model. Uh, there have been many visions of the mark of the beast uh, in Christian literature that thought that it was going to be some sort of biometric verification. Yeah. Uh, so imagine that you replace your credit card with a barcode or a chip in your arm or your head or your hand yeah. or something like that that you can use to pay for groceries or something like that just by scanning your body. A lot of people have said, well, something like this is coming and that's got to be it. That's the mark of the beast. And then the Antichrist uh, is perhaps uh, the AI, right? This, sure. This, OK. This post singularity artificial intelligence that that we're investing all of our uh, our faith and energy into. And I put it I and this is an interesting idea, too. I have seen. Um, arguments to say that uh, the Illuminati or the Antichrist or the Illuminati and the Antichrist, however you want to factor those two uh, bad guy factions together, they are going to create a fake rapture okay, in order to trick the faithful into thinking that the rapture has already occurred and they were left out, thus like dismantling their faith. A bit. That is an awesome conspiracy theory. It is. Um, and I, that's like the mother of them all. <laughs> yeah. I found, uh, some, some stuff online about it dating back from around 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were weirdly propping up some of this by pointing to a technology review article about the, about editing live video, editing people out of live video. Okay. Uh, the idea being here that through mass media consumption, you could fake the rapture of individuals. And it, and if I may, I'm thinking if the Illuminati's involved in this, you could then disappear like famous amoral individuals and say, "Hey, 
check out this. This particular awful celebrity just got raptured. You didn't. Clearly, you should abandon all of your your faith. That is uh, that is mighty sinister, Robert. <laughs> or is it though? Because okay, so if and and I'm I'm playing with the ideas here and, and having some fun with the ideas, but. If the Antichrist is an artificial intelligence, could it be a benevolent artificial intelligence that has realized, hey, if the re- if uh, if if uh, the end times come, that's bad for all these humans that I'm protecting. What can I, as an all-powerful AI, do in human society to prevent the end times from coming? Does that mean faking the rapture and? Perhaps forestalling the rapture? Uh, well, I know many Christians believe that the Antichrist will come in the name of peace. Yeah. And that is weird that you would end up in a scenario where you would say, no, peace is bad because we actually need all of that tribulation to come so that uh, the good guys can ultimately win, even though it's going to mean a lot of, lot of suffering. Okay, we've gotten very, <laughs> very deep into the both secular and religious theology of the end here, so maybe we should pull back. Are right. you ready to pull back? Let's pull back. Let's pull back to the real world and, and look at a few examples of what happens when our, our, our eschatons, when our spiritual end times utopias or apocalypses don't come about as predicted? So there have been so many religious predictions of the end times that have failed. There is no way we can even begin to list them. I would recommend you go to Wikipedia. Here's a great Wikipedia page uh, called List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. <laughs> there are just hundreds, uh, and it's... It's really interesting. One of my favorites is uh, the the leader of the or one of the leaders of the the Munster Rebellion, the Anabaptist Rebellion in uh, Prussia. Uh, Jan Matthias he had mm-hmm. a good end times prediction that didn't turn out good for him, and I think he ended up mutilated. And uh, yeah, anyway, things things don't tend to well actually. Not tend to. Why am I hedging? <laughs> no one who has ever predicted the end of the world has turned out to be correct. That that is a true statement. Inevitably, <laughs> the, these predictions fail. And then what happens when they fail? Because if you're the kind of individual who's throwing out these these uh, predictions, you tend to have there tend to be people listening to you, reading your word, gathering around you, maybe giving you all of their money uh-huh. and living in a barn with you or in a bunker or planning for spaceships to come and steal you away so you can avoid massive floods. Uh-huh. Um, and then how do you readjust? Well, there's a there was a famous uh, 1965 book that came out from psychologist Leon Festinger titled "When Prophecy Fails," and this is this was a an important work. He 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 and his colleagues studied the Seekers, a religious group that believed a massive flood would wipe out the West Coast, uh, and and the the, the founders said that beings from the planet uh, Clarion were communicating to her through automatic writing, uh, and then. The followers were abandoning their jobs, their possessions, their spouses to wait on the flying saucers that would rescue them. Wow. And then nothing happened. So so they all they all figured they were wrong and went home, right? No, no, no. And and this is something we can sort of see. I guess we can look for models of this in in our own lives on lesser with with lesser um, lesser stakes. Yeah. One example that instantly comes to mind and we see a lot of this in sort of geek culture, and that is what happens when that movie that you're super excited about doesn't get that great of reviews? How do you mm. respond? Do you say, 
uh, well, maybe it's not going to be that good. Or you see it and you think, okay, well, I agree with the critics and it wasn't that good. Or you do, do you double down? Oh, many will <laughs> double down. Yes. Depending on, I, I think a lot of times it's based on how much you've invested in the movie going into it. So if there's a movie you hoped would be good, but you thought about it a couple times before it came out and then you see the reviews aren't good, that's what, oh, that's disappointing. Mm-hmm. If it's a movie you've been talking about with your friends every single day, up until it comes out and then the reviews aren't good, you're like, well, they got to be wrong. Right. Now, you know, it's sunk cost. Yeah. Now, obviously, with films, you can simply argue, well, hey, I enjoyed it, so I don't care. Uh, certainly, I'm I'm a, the, the type of person who enjoys many bad movies. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm not going to apologize about, say, liking Chronicles of Riddick. It's a it's a bad movie. I'm not going to argue it's good. But I, but it certainly was enjoyable. Robert, I have a question for you. You seem like maybe the right guy for this. Okay. Were you one of the few people who liked Ang Lee's Hulk? Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it at the time. I didn't like love it, but I was like, yep, that's the Hulk. He's hulking it up there. Yeah. I liked the, the follow up more, but I don't think, I don't think people were in love with that one. Like that one, even though it was an early Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Oh, the one with Edward Norton? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel like, uh, I enjoyed that. that. One seemed kind of forgettable. Yeah. That one, the, 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 those who are a, a member of the, the religion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they do not bring that particular, um, book of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Bible up that much. Yeah. It is the it is the problematic chapter it, in the scripture. It's like Second Chronicles. You, yeah. People just don't quote from it a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, anyway, I, I'm getting a little off, off subject here. Essentially, Fest, Festinger entered into this with the mindset that people would need to resolve cognitive dissonance. They can't just argue, hey, I know that this... I know that my beliefs are crappy, but I enjoy them. No, your beliefs were based along the lines that a flood would come and you'd be on a UFO right now, and you are not. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? He said that they they doubled down on their beliefs and recruitment efforts. But in reality, some leave, but the, the vast majority uh, experience little cognitive dissonance, and so they make only minor adjustments to their beliefs. So wow. it ends up having like... It doesn't have that great of an effect. Yeah. Like the, the failures come and you can always, this is the key part, you can always attribute that failed prophecy to human slip ups. Right. Well, I mean, so let's say you predict that the singularity is going to come in a certain year mm-hmm. and you get there and nothing happens. Well, I mean, you could always say, well, hold on now. This doesn't challenge in any way. The principle that the singularity is coming and it's coming soon. It's just, I can explain this. We had a, we had a big recession in the economy several years back and that cut way down on funding for universities and corporations that are studying machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so progress just got slowed by some external events that are, you know, my my predictions basically sound. We just had a few slip ups that happened. We didn't realize Pokemon Go would be such a success and distract everybody and and decrease productivity. Right. So, and yeah, you you can, you can make those arguments about about uh, singularity. You can make those those arguments about any kind of social utopian idea. Yeah, you can oh, make excuses for anything. Yeah, I mean the the typical problem with utopian cults is it's almost always the same. The the utopian leader says this is the way we're going to make life better. 
for for you and all the followers, and then there's some sort of a sex scandal. There's some sort of power disruption. Something goes wrong, and you can always say, well, no, they they just were the wrong vessel for the message. Well, this also works for non-technological but secular utopias. Imagine the way people think about the implementation of a communist utopia. Yeah. You know, so you you create a Marxist government uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, socialist democracy or whatever. But it's so, you know, the real utopian vision, like we're going to create a perfect workers paradise um, and and it kind of fails. Or, yeah. I mean, I guess it's always arguable, but I think it's pretty hard to say, look at the Soviet Union or something and say that worked great. Uh, but you can always argue, well, they did, they just didn't do it right. There's not, it's not a problem with the principle. They're just, they weren't real communists or something. Yeah. They were the, they were the, the fake Christ uh, as opposed yeah. to the, the actual Christ. They were antichrist. And yeah. There's Christ. nothing wrong with my, uh, the principle behind my, my end times prediction. I just, I made, I made errors. Yeah. Somewhere. The math is wrong. I, I translated the golden uh, tablets incorrectly, et cetera. So that seems to be the, the the basic time timeline, the basic outcome for any kind of failed prophecy, uh, be it, you know, the, the the value of a particular superhero movie or the outcome of a of an apocalyptic prophecy. Robert, I want to ask you about one weird specific example. So we've okay. mentioned the idea of singularity that, of course, hasn't been disproven yet. But, you know, we, we can imagine how it could be adjusted if it were disproven. We've talked about. Marxist supposed utopias. Uh, but I wonder if you could look at the Internet as a failed secular utopia, because if you mm. go back to the early day, you know, dot com bubble type days where people right. are talking about what's possible with the Internet. There is a lot of hyperbolic positive language where people are talking in incredibly grandiose terms about the Internet almost as a type of utopia. It's going to open all these doors and connect people all over the world for limitless sharing of ideas and potential. The information superhighway where, you know, we're all going to be talking and sharing ideas and it's just going to be great. And I don't know, look at. The, your Facebook feed today. <laughs> Could you argue that the internet is a failed secular utopia? If you, if you look at its goals as purely utopian, I think, I think very much so. Like, I don't think the internet, certainly the internet has, has connected us more. It's allowed for a great deal of, of sharing and, and, uh, and, and informational uh, availability. But on the other hand, it also allows you to simply, you know, flock to people who share your own set of beliefs, making it easier to find uh, uh, like-minded individuals, both for uh, both in the positive and in the negative sense. You've been able it allows us to, uh, uh, to put on a mask uh, and lose our identity and and lash out with the most horrible, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the most horrible ways mm-hmm. and complete strangers. Uh, I mean, I don't have to tell anybody this. You're all on the Internet. You know that, uh, you know, how it all plays out. It's more of just an expression and in various ways, apl- amplification of who we are as opposed to a refinement of who we are. Isn't that always the way? Yeah. You could look at that as all utopias. Somehow all utopias end up being very human. Yeah. Like we're still going to express as human, no matter what sort of social structure you try and strain us through, no matter what kind of technological change you strain us through, we're going to come out as the same animal.
And I think that's inherently why there is the appeal of these superhuman forces, like either a supernatural religious force, God, or, uh, or, you know, the, the gods of any religion coming in to set things right via some kind of power that transcends what we're capable of naturally, or a superhuman artificial intelligence, powerful machines that, that are smarter than we are and know better than us and can improve us in ways that we don't seem to be capable of via our natural experimentation with social behavior. Yeah. So enter the AI, enter Christ, enter the, the Bodhisattva of the future. Yeah. Uh, wh- whatever it, it takes for something from the outside to step in and shake us into the right form. All right. So there you have it. Uh, the rapture, the singularity, uh, <laughs> transhumanism. We threw out a lot of uh, ideas here and moved them around on the board, uh, had some fun with them. Hopefully had some uh, some thoughtful conversation about it, and I'm sure a lot of you have some feedback as well, your own thoughts on these topics. And I and I do want to ask everyone out there, if there was some sort of a, a Christian rapture, what if there was a way to create a rapture-proof suit? Oh, wow, superhuman technology versus superhuman uh, supernatural power. Yeah, I mean, the, the AI antichrist that I was um, going on about earlier, perhaps they might come up with some sort of uh, shielding. To try and prevent, uh, you know, souls from being uh, sucked up into the into the into the outer uh, void. Uh-huh. And then on the other hand, perhaps someone might want to, you know, even a, a faithful individual might say, actually, I need to stay behind. I want to document it. Or maybe I I love the some people in my life too much who are not believers. Or I just want to you know, make sure I get to work on time the next day. I better wear a rapture proof suit that will contain my myself and keep my, you know, almost like wearing uh, like weighted boots to keep from just rising up off the ground. Robert, you never cease to amaze me. Oh, well, well thank you, Joe. I, I try. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Raptor Proof Suits, what do you think about that? You can find us at uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, a few other social media accounts as well. You'll find links to those at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you want to email us, as always, you can write to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.